This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Recollections Radio. Monday morning tea time is now all about sharing memories with you, old and new, of life in Dunedin. Bringing you stories, interviews and music from times past and inviting you to share your memories with us. Presented by Jill Bowie and Kay Mercer, the team behind Dunedin Public Library's Scattered Seeds Archive. Thanks to generous funding by the New Zealand Libraries Partnership Project. Recollections Radio, Monday mornings at 11 on 105.4 FM and 1575 AM. Good morning and welcome to Recollections Radio. I'm Kay Mercer. I'm here on my own today. Jill's not here. She's uh, still busy working on the exhibition for um, the Reed Gallery coming up at the library in May. Uh, So it's just you and me today. And coming up on today's show, I'll be talking to the wonderful Lisa Warrington, Dunedin-based actor, director, author, former theatre studies associate professor at the University of Otago and the curator of Theatre Aotearoa database. And we'll be talking about the changing face of theatre in Dunedin. I'm really looking forward to that. But first, as it's just us, I'm going to share with you today that it's my 30th wedding anniversary. So well done, Chris. You deserve a medal. Uh, Like many of you here listening today, I'm sure memories of my wedding day are pretty crystal clear even after all this time how we got the giggles during the ceremony for example my auntie mary really disapproved of that um how we nicked off during the reception in our my full wedding dress and chris was all suited and booted and we went to the corner shop during the reception to get an ice cream (laughs) and we sat outside eating them and people tooted as they drove by it was lovely and also how my lovely new husband made me toast for on the first day of our honeymoon and he'd spent so long cutting out the letters in toast to spell the words I love you that the toast was pretty cold and awful by the time I got it but it was sweet those are the sorts of things that stay with you forever aren't they and you must have some memories yourselves of your wedding day you maybe you'd like to share them with us and if you would like to share those memories you can email me at library at dcc.govt.nz. It would be lovely to include memories of Dunedin's weddings on our Scattered Seeds archive. So if you're willing to, to share those with us, that would be wonderful. Let's have some music now. This is highly appropriate. This is Get Me to the Church on Time by Stanley Holloway. There's just a few more hours. That's all the time you've got. A few more hours before they tie the knot. There's drinks and girls all over London, and I gotta track them down in just a few more hours. <laughs> Set them up, me darling. I'm getting married in the morning. Ding dong, the bells are gonna chime. Pull out the stopper, let's have a whopper, but get me to church on time I got to be there in the morning spruced up and looking in me prime girls come and kiss me show how you'll miss me but get me to the church on time if I am dancing roll up the floor if I am whistling me out the door I'm getting married in the morning Ding dong, the bells are gonna chime Kick up a rumpus, but don't lose the compass And get me to the church Get him to the church For God's sake, get me to the church on time I'm getting married in the morning Ding dong 
Stanley Holloway and get me to the church on time. There's a big shout out now to our home services team at Dunedin Public Libraries for their help both to get this radio show up and running. They were really helpful in getting our survey out to people to find out what sort of things you like to hear, um, but also for supporting our current project for the Scattered Seeds Archive, looking at people's memories of the polio epidemic in the 1950s. And, a lot of, and you can still take part in that project. We are still looking for people's memories. So if you notice the books, the boxes around the libraries, you can Make, drop down your memories and Home Services team are also putting out uh, response forms in the book bags that they're sending out. So really appreciative to the Home Services team there. And a lot of people at home make use of the Home Services at the library. But if you don't know about it yet, Home Services is a free service for people who find it difficult to visit our libraries in person or can't get out to the book buses. So Home Services provides a tailor-made library service delivered to your door every month. So you can choose your books and they get delivered to you. They can provide fiction or non-fiction books, large or regular print books, magazines, talking books, music, CDs and DVDs. And if you'd like more information about the Home Services, you can call 03474 3681. I'll say that again, 03474 3681. Or if you can email, you can email homeservicesdpl at dcc.govt.nz. So that's homeservicesdpl at dcc.govt.nz. So if you do that, the friendly team will talk to you about their service and all about your specific needs and desires. And they'll get the books ready for you and send them out on a monthly basis. Um, They're the experts at helping you access and explore the library from afar. So they're really wonderful at at doing that job. Now then, tomorrow is International Day of Human Spaceflight. I wonder if you knew that. 12th of April 1961 was the day of the first human spaceflight carried out by Yuri Gagarin, a, a Soviet citizen. 
And there's actually a New Zealand connection to the space race. I don't know if you know that. William Hayward Pickering, O-N-Z-K-B-E, was born on the 24th of December 1910. And he was a New Zealand-born rocket scientist who headed the Pasadena, California's Jet Propulsion Laboratory for 21 years. He didn't retire until 1976. He was a senior NASA luminary and pioneered the exploration of space. And he was also a founding member of the United States National Academy of Engineering. Pretty amazing, isn't it? Someone from from New Zealand going over there and running the space race. Anyway, Pickering was keen to support authentic science in his home country of New Zealand, and he was patron of New Zealand's only school-based research group, the Nexus Research Group, and that was from 1999 until he died in 2004. Between 1977 and his death, Pickering also served as patron of the New Zealand Space Flight Association, a non-profit organisation that existed from 1977 to 2012 to promote an informed approach to astronautics and related sciences. Amazing. Oh, well, let's have a space-themed bit of music, shall we? This is Also Sprach Zarathustra from Richard Strauss, and it's performed by the Boston Symphony Orchestra. sure you'll recognize that amazingly familiar piece of music that was from the film 2001 space odyssey and it's also sprach zarathustra by richard strauss well i've been waiting for this moment for some time i'm very excited today because we have with us the wonderful lisa warrington i've never had such a large introduction normally when i introduce people so i'll, I'll run through this and then we'll have a chat uh, welcome, Lisa, first of all. Hi. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, Lisa has been Associate Professor at the School of Performing Arts at the University of Otago. Um, in addition to teaching, researching, writing and directing over 130 productions, Lisa has a long association with the Fortune Theatre and is a founder and trust board member of Dunedin-based independent theatre cooperative WOW Productions. She's also the founder of the Theatre Aotearoa Database, which she started in 2004 
and that's a growing and ongoing project. It's like Topsy, it grew and grew. And it's an archive of professional and many amateur theatre productions staged in New Zealand, and that's been anything that's performed basically since 1840, is that right? To the present day. So it's a very large task. Lisa has received Best Director Awards from the New Zealand Listener for The Road to Mecca, that was in 2007, for Auntie and Me in 2005, and for The Daylight Atheist and Cherish in 2004. She's also a writer, as I mentioned, of many excellent books on theatre, including her latest Floating Islanders, Pacifica Theatre in Aotearoa. Which I co-wrote with David O'Donnell. David O'Donnell, that's right. Uh, And that was published in 2017. Mm-hmm. And Lisa was also awarded a Lifetime Achievement Award, well-deserved, in 2014 at the Dunedin Theatre Awards. And she is a life member of the Australasian Association for Theatre, Drama and Performance Studies. Quite a stellar career, Lisa. I'm very, very honoured to have you. Thank, Thank you for coming. Kay. Thank you, Kay. So where did it all start for you? How did you get into the theatre life? Um, it's just been part of my life since I was a small child, really. Mm. Um, Were your parents? No, my parents weren't in theatre. My grandmother used to play pub piano, but that's Ah, about it. Excellent, yeah. But myself and my younger brother and sister all just used to play games that were really extended kind of performative Mm. games where we would create entire worlds and environments and just play them out. So, for example, I created a trip to the moon, which involved my brother and sister having to climb up stairs to get to the moon (laughs) and what happened up there and all sorts of Mm. things like that. And we would just put on performances for our parents or just for ourselves or just play out those games. Mm. I didn't realize until many years later when I was doing directing that clearly that I'd presaged being a director even from my early childhood. Mm. You were directing your siblings, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So at what point did you say this could be a career for me? I never did really. I just fell into everything. I've just... I I kind of imagined myself being a teacher and and or a theatre person from young years. And it just happened that way. Mm. So maybe I wished into the universe and it came to be. it was right for you, yes. Mm. Obviously on the right path. But you didn't start in New Zealand, you started overseas. Well, I was born in England and uh, began there. And then went to Australia with my parents and family when we migrated there when I was a teenager. Right. So I spent a number of years in Australia and then I came to Dunedin specifically for a three-year contract at the University of Otago back in the early 1980s. Right. And somehow I've never left. Excellent. We're glad. (laughs) (laughs) So you started here in theatre studies, did you? Yes, that's right. At the time I was the only theatre teacher and in fact there were only three others of that designation in the entire country. So things have certainly grown, changed and improved Mm. for theatre studies as a a discipline in the universities around New Zealand. Yes, that was going to be my next question actually. How, how, in Dunedin at least, how have you seen theatre evolve over the years? Well, theatre of course was here long before I was. So Mm. um, what I wanted to do when I got here was, my initial thought was to introduce some Australian drama here because... Ah. Of course, I'd just come from Australia and I thought there was some wonderful work over there. So, for example, one of the first plays I ever directed at the university was a play called The Chapel Perilous by Dorothy Hewitt. Mm. It's one of the great Australian female playwrights. And uh, it's kind of a female fantasy version of the Arthurian legends, hence the title. That sounds exciting. So the heroine, rather than being King Arthur, is a teenage schoolgirl called Sally Banner. 
Right. Um, and uh, anyway, it's an extraordinary piece of writing. But um, there was a thing happening at um, Allen Hall at the university very sporadically. It had begun before I came here, and it was called Lunchtime Theatre. Oh, yes, I've been to some So it was a kind of a very informal, sporadic kind of thing. But I decided to make that a bigger thing. Right. So lunchtime theatre kind of grew, as you said before, like Topsy. Mm. And my aim particularly was to promote, again, New Zealand theatre at a time even before New Zealand theatre was much of a thing to be promoted. Mm. So I thought that was very important. And then as the years have gone on, also in particular to promote and encourage the work of student writers mm. so they yes. could have a playground and a field to try out ideas. Mm both as writers and then also, of course, as actors, directors. Um, we've got many other courses at the university, including an entire technical program, yeah. which is was not taught by me. It was taught by Martin Roberts, who still teaches it, who right. is a lighting designer, a professional lighting designer in his own right. Yeah. So we kind of created our own mini industry of theatre based at Allen Hall. And in the early years, I also used to encourage extensive use of Allen Hall as a theatre. So some weeks we would have as many as three different shows in one day at Allen Hall. Oh, goodness, right. So you might, on a Friday night, have lunchtime theatre. Mm. Then you'd have a regular performance of something quite different at, um, you know, sort of like seven or eight o'clock at night. Mm. And then you would have a late night show as well, all different works so that Allen Hall became a really very buzzy yeah. place to, to, that to do That sounds quite hard to manage too. You've got different yeah, lots productions of going in and out on one Absolutely. day. Yes. And we yeah. would encourage people to come in. So we used to have, doesn't really happen now because the theatre at university is used more extensively because we have a bigger theatre programme. Mm. Um, but in those days, there were only two theatre papers when I first arrived, and then they grew and grew and grew over the years. Mm. So we would encourage, it, welcome people from outside who were touring to come through. So we oh, had people like the Front Lawn performing or the Top Twins performing in their okay. early years yep. before they reached their heights of fame. Mm, fabulous. So it's a really exciting programme even now. Oh, it's very much yeah. an exciting programme now, yeah. even though I've left it. <laughs> <laughs> you left a good legacy. That's, Absolutely, that's what we can yes. say about that. Well, I hope so. Yeah. So it's, do you think it's changed hugely over the years? I mean, obviously we've had theatres come and go. You mean in Dunedin? Yeah. Um, well, it's very hard to say because COVID has really knocked everyone for six. I mean, mm. currently, of course, the Fringe is happening. Fringe has been going for, what is it now, 10 or 15 or about 15 years, something yes, I like think that. So. Yeah. And it's a marvel in its own right, this kind of little mecca of so many exciting projects that come together at this time of year. Yeah. And of course, COVID has really knocked that sideways. So mm. even though they're still absolutely performing a Fringe this year, a lot of stuff has either had to be cancelled or has gone online. Mm. But it's interesting to see how people have innovated, isn't it? And the same with Absolutely, theater. yes. They've been very innovative in mm. how they get round the problems that the world as we know it has put up for us. Mm. But there's always been, I mean, New Zealand... Initially, New Zealand theatre was professional theatre toured from overseas, mostly Australia or England, ah. sometimes America. Mm. So there were vast tracts of touring productions. Dunedin had its first theatre building in 1862 right. up in Stafford Street in what's right. now, or what, what then was actually built into a, a horse bazaar. Oh, goodness. So um, <laughs> you can find all these wonderful things in the old Otago Daily Times about it in yeah. 1862. They took this horse bazaar they kept it for its purpose during the day so it stabled horses 
But in the evening, they had a stage that lowered down uh, yes. and they would put out seats and the horses would be kind of partitioned off so you could still smell them and hear them. <laughs> And then they would exactly, yeah. <laughs> and then they would perform plays, mm. um, which were reasonably popular. Yes, um, that's quite Shakespearean, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yes, it is. And um, even Julius Vogel got in on the act because he wrote a couple of plays that were performed in Dunedin. Was he a good playwright? Um, not necessarily, <laughs> but he was a very good writer. Mm. But he wanted to try his hand at plays. Yes. Of course, at that time, he was or he was becoming the editor of the Otago Daily mm. Times, yes. apart from his later great career, of course. Mm. Anyway, so the initial theatre was professionals coming from other places. And then for a long time, the, the real mainstay of theatre in the whole of New Zealand was amateur theatre. Mm. Yes. Um, and that was an extraordinarily thriving business. Mm. And it included, of course, Dunedin. So yes. Once the professional theatre was established in 1862, very soon after that, it inspired amateurs to get together so that they would sort of, you know, take their afternoons when the shops were shut to rehearse or whatever. Mm. And um, they ran their own theatre performances as well as the professionals. Yes. So it kind of grew from there. So it was only really in the 1950s that New Zealand had its own permanent homegrown, supposedly, professional mm. theatre right. um, and that was the New Zealand Players and where were which they based? Was start, well they were a touring national company oh, okay. loosely based in Wellington very loosely and originally run by Edith and Richard Campion being Jane oh, Campion's parents goodness, right. there's a connection yeah mm. absolutely so they ran their theatre for um, a number of years and its purpose was to tour throughout the country which mm. it did yes. very successfully with a mixture of very popular mm. and Shakespeare and sometimes more esoteric and interesting plays. Mm. The popular ones there, of course, to make them some money so they could yes. keep going. Things that people would recognise. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Mm. So, in fact, Louise Petherbridge, who's a Dunedin, yes. wonderful Dunedin actor, trained in England and came back to this country and got her professional start here with the New Zealand players touring as lead ah, roles in a bunch of their plays. Right. Anyway, they went out of business, but in the 60s, we had a theatre in Wellington called Downstage. And from there, it began to grow throughout the country. So all the main cities ended up with at least one professional theatre. Of course, mm. Dunedin's was the fortune, right? which ran for at least 40 years before its untimely demise. Yes, very sad. Very mm. sad indeed. I was, mm. I'm still very sad that it vanished as it did but mm. there you go um, and alongside that you've got lots of companies like the globe which of course has a very yes, long right. running prestigious legacy under the Careys back in the early 60s when they turned their living room into a theater mm. there's obviously great support for theater in the, in the city isn't there i think so and yeah. it helps that it's a university town because the globe could put on a lot of plays in the early days that were those mainstays of I suppose you could say forefront vanguard theatre like mm. the Beckett's and the Ionesco's and yes. all those kinds of things that weren't necessarily being done by any professional theatre mm. but which the sort of leading repertory, amateur repertory companies would be doing. Mm. So how, when did you start to get involved with The Fortune? Um, the first year I arrived in Dunedin actually, oh, okay. which was 1981, God help me. Right. I uh, came in, that year I did two things, I played Miss Prism <laughs> in the production of The Importance of Being Earnest that The Fortune yes, did, yes. in which Louise Featherbridge played Lady Bracknell. Right. And I also co-directed with Rauri Paratine, who is a very well-known director, actor, writer, 
star of things like Whale Rider, that kind of thing. Of course, yes. But in those days, he was still a young actor, and he happened to be employed by The Fortune. Mm. And he had written a play which he and I co-directed for the Young People's Theatre and attached to The Fortune. And that was my start in The Fortune Theatre, and it kind of grew from there. Yes, and you became a member of the board? No, well, yes, I did become a member of the board for a short time, but Mm. that really wasn't my point of focus because I wanted to work as a professional director. Mm. And I I saw those as possibly slightly incompatible roles. So, um, which is another, for example, another reason why I have never (coughs) yet ever written a public review of anything, (laughs) even though I certainly could, but Mm. I don't want to mix my world of doing with a yes. world of critiquing people doing. I can understand that, yes. <laughs> so I've never gone down that particular path. Mm. And then for a time I was also associate director of the Fortune Theatre whilst Campbell Thomas was the artistic director. Right, yes. Exciting times. Yeah, yeah. And so I got to do a lot of work there and it's yeah. wonderful to be working in a professional environment where you have dedicated people whose entire focus is to make the mm. work. That's right. Which is the big difference, of course, because in amateur theatre, people can have just as much love for the craft and just mm. as much pleasure in doing it, but they have to fit it around their other lives. Yes. It's like elite sportsmen and, and sort of recreational sportsmen, really. It's like I, different, I guess isn't so, it? yeah. 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 So in all those years, do you have any sort of standouts that you really loved, particular performances or...? plays that I've done you mean yeah yeah I mean I like all my babies but um, (laughs) I've always had a very soft spot for a production I did of Wednesday to come by Rene and uh, I think it's a very good play to begin with but um, for some reason it all kind of aligned beautifully the the lead role was taken by Miranda Harcourt who again has gone on to a very stellar career in later years and still has one in fact and she's also the mother of very stellar performers because she's the mother of Thomas and Mackenzie for example Ah, who's starring in every movie you can think of right now. Yes that's right yes. So anyway I thought I really enjoyed working on Wednesday to Come. We we decided to create a set that was as naturalistic as we possibly could for a very particular reason because I don't usually do naturalism Um, in set design and what have you Mm. but because this play is actually not that much dialogue in it but the performance extends itself by virtue of the work that's done in the kitchen by these women working right so the way to perform the play is to honor the work of those women in their kitchen so you literally see them ironing things washing things Mm. making scones cooking them doing all these things that are kind of what you might regard as kind of domestic normality Mm. but which Rene likes to elevate and say look in these worlds in this kitchen lives are shattered worlds are changed just as much as on any you know male great playwrights world that they create. Yes. I think Renee did a wonderful job in in that respect. Another production I really enjoyed was a production I did of Much Ado About Nothing. Um, When I do Shakespeare, I like to play with it a bit. I like to add things from other plays and (laughs) kind of rewrite the scenes to Mm. put all my favorite bits in, so (laughs) I do that. I once did a production of As You Like It in which I actually wrote an entire scene myself taking dialogue from a variety of other Shakespeare oh, plays. Because I thought that the one character that was under shortchanged in As You Like It is old Adam, mm. who is the faithful companion of the hero Orlando. And I thought, 
Adam needs a scene of his own. <laughs> so, so I wrote him a scene with Jaquiz, the melancholy Jaquiz, and they performed that. And I'm hoping that nobody noticed that it wasn't Shakespeare. Well, it, <laughs> the words were all Shakespeare's, but they were all taken from a yes. whole bunch of different plays by yeah. me. That's exciting to be able to add to Shakespeare, isn't it? Well, I think new. you can do that with impunity. With a, with a modern New Zealand writer, I've done a lot of New Zealand work, I would not presume to change mm. their play. Not that I'd be allowed to because it's, you, know, you can't just go around doing that. No. But I wouldn't want to because they deserve to have the hearing of their work. That's right. Whereas Shakespeare is so familiar to us all and can be found anywhere and everywhere that I don't think it matters no. what you do to him, really. No. And it's interesting to make the, the theme, the story, relevant to now, isn't it? Mm. To bring it up to date and, and make it appeal to a newer audience. Yeah. I hope so. I must say I remember being very proud of myself when I did a production of Midsummer Night's Dream at the university. And the audience was so getting into it that when the, the, the four lovers are having their big knockdown yes. fight with each other, the audience would just applaud every night. And I'm <laughs> thinking, this is so great. I'm not making them do that. They no. want to applaud Shakespeare. That's right. Fabulous. Well, yeah. you've, you've, you've achieved what you needed to achieve, haven't you? Mm. Yeah. And you've done quite a lot of site-specific work. For example, you did that wonderful production down at the um, railway station. Yeah, Lines of Fire. Yeah. Yes, that's, um, that's uh, through WOW Productions. Wow, one of WOW's purposes is to often perform in non-theatre spaces. Mm, yes. And we've done a lot of plays in alternate venues, including Lines of Fire, which we commissioned Gary Henderson playwright Gary Henderson mm. to write for us. Oh, so he wrote it specifically for Specifically that. for the railway oh, station, right. yeah. yeah. And uh, it was lovely because it's a kind of a, a meditation on time changing so that being in the railway station, you can think about the fact that it's on reclaimed land, for yes. example. Mm -hmm. And I think at that time, no, the trains were still running at that time, weren't they? Yes, they were, but um, when there did was you something do going on. When was it? Possibly... I actually can't remember the exact year now. You can look it up in my theatre Aotearoa database. <laughs> yes, which indeed, was where which will come through in a minute. <laughs> but um, I just, I loved the fact that there, were, there was dialogue about things like, we'd be standing on the, in the vestibule, yes. in the exact place right where the ticket office is, yes. and then D Gary's script would talk about particular people passing through, right. the schoolboy running for the train, or the young lovers saying goodbye, mm. or somebody buying their ticket, and there it was. We were right Beautiful. there with the stuff. Yeah. And, so um, where was the audience? Everywhere. They, the point oh. is that it's a kind of pr pr promenade piece. Right. So we took the audience with us. The play begins right out in the garden in mm -hmm. front of the railway station. Yes. So the audience gets to sort of see the building. Yeah. And then we had some stuff talking about that. Mm. And then we walk towards the building with the audience. Mm. And then we enter the vestibule and we look around and we see what's there. And so they're part of the play, but also it's a tour. Totally, that's right. <laughs> but it's very much a, um, a play that's about, well, about the passage of time and mm. about what's lost and what's, yes. you know, all those things. We take them upstairs and then they look down onto the wonderful tessellated yes. Yes. floor. And then there's a whole piece about the, um, the golden ratios that, that are used in there mm. and looking at the floor and what yes. have you. And then we end up on the platform and then we took them onto a train and um, the one thing we couldn't do sadly was drive the train away oh <laughs> but the audience was hope hoping that we would yeah. and i so love it but on some nights 
another train would come through the station just at that moment. So when you're sitting on the train, as you probably know, if you see another train passing, it feels like you're moving. It feels like you're moving. Yes, it does. So that was a magic thing that sometimes would happen. So yeah, that was a very pleasurable thing to do. And it was the characters in it were from different time periods, like there were ghosts that had lived there. And the narrator's name was Josephine, as in the train train. that lives in the station. So yeah, that was a a nice project to do. So it must have had enormous challenges for you as a director, but also quite exciting. Well, it was exciting. To be able to play with all these things. The the fun thing about, one of the fun things was we rehearsed there quite a lot. And in rehearsal, we would then be witness to tourism. And you would see this endless row of tour buses come up to the railway station. Mm. We might be up in the gallery doing a bit of work, looking down into the vestibule or whatever. And in would come the tourists they would grab out their cameras, they would maybe snap the floor, they would snap the, the uh, stained glass window of the train, yes. they would run away again. And I always, because you see that so often, it made me so sad that yeah. everybody's experience of the place is mediated through, mm. got to grab my quick shots to remind me I've been here, that's now I'm right. out of here. Yes, they're not really experiencing it, no, are they? that's right. Yeah. So it made even more poignant doing the play in that respect. Yes. And you've done others... Uh, Larnock Castle. You had a uh, we did a perform well. The, we did a play by Michael Ann Forster called Larnock Castle of Lies, and it was actually a season at the Fortune Theatre. Mm. But we did a special one-off performance up at Larnock's Castle. Oh, that's exciting! Yeah, yeah, it was exciting, and uh, we had ghostly presences there because we performed in the ballroom, which was built by Larnock for his young daughter who died very young. Mm. And we were sure that she was haunting the place because in the performance, smoke came down the chimney. Oh, it wasn't, uh, a, wasn't a prop? No, it was a, no, it was oh, real goodness. smoke coming down the chimney. Not a special effect? Not wow. at all. And um, <laughs> there was a bolt of lightning in the window right beside Larnock when he killed himself, which he does oh, at the climax goodness. of the play. What did the actor do? <laughs> well, <laughs> didn't do anything, really. <laughs> but I just thought that was the most marvellous poetic thing that could possibly yeah. have happened. And again, the audience, you took the audience along with you? We did, although in this case, they, the main performance was all in the ballroom, mm-hmm. so that's where they experienced the yeah. play. What a great experience for them. Yeah, well, it's an interesting yeah. thing to do, that's certain. Yeah. And then we did Farley's Arcade, which is one of the wild productions that oh, I'm most yes. um, proud of in some respects, yes. um, which was a big joint. All of all of the people that worked on it sort of co-created it in various ways. Yes. That was below the Athenaeum, wasn't it? Uh, at the Athenaeum and below the Athenaeum. Yes, yes. So there are many levels there. So mm. the audience, um, when they arrive, they're given pretend money, which they're right. going to be able to spend later. Right. Farley's Arcade was a real place in Dunedin. Ah. Um, and there are wonderful reports in the ODT about it again. Yes. About the car- and it's you know, like an arcade, so there were shops and coffee mm. places and people milling around, and it was an exciting 19th century place mm. to be in Dunedin. So we tried to recreate Farley's Arcade. Mm. So we began by going, you know, there's a, 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 a theatre in the Athenaeum um, well, there is now, of course, it's called the New Athenaeum, yes. and it's a black box space. Yes. But before it became that, it was just an old kind of rickety little stage That's where, in right. fact, the Fortune first performed when they formed. Is that right? Before ah, they moved into the church. Right. Yeah. So we thought this is perfect. So we built, we turned that into a 19th century theatre yes. with painted, with a painted proscenium arts, just oh. like Pollock's Toy Theatre proscenium. Beautiful. Yeah. 
which is wonderful, and a painted backdrop of early Dunedin. Mm. And actors who were named for real actors who performed in Dunedin right. in the 19th century. Yes. And Richard Huber wrote a play called The Golden Handkerchief, which was a kind of takeoff of Othello, but actually about these people, both as actors and then the people who played the roles of those actors. Well, that's interesting and complex. Yeah. yeah. And so they performed in a very kind of 19th century manner in this yes. auditorium. And then the ghost of one of the first Maori settlers appeared and mm. took us away from that space and led us down, down back in time ah. into a place that we'd set up to be the arcade. Yes. So we went downstairs through this rustling forest into the arcade where people could spend their money, yes. spend about half an hour there just doing things and interacting with all the people. Mm. And we even had, before he was mayor, Aaron Hawkins played the mayor of Dunedin oh, in the 19th exciting. century. I wonder if that inspired him well, indeed. to take up And uh, people could uh, <laughs> use their pretend money to have a photograph taken with mm. him, for example, as if he was a 19th century figure. Ah. Or they could, I think we'd done some 3D printing of teeth, for example. <laughs> Um, and I think that the uh, Dunedin Omaru has them. Punk, not punk. Oh, steampunk. Steampunk, mm, thank you. Yes. Thank you. Simple word, I should know that. <laughs> um, steampunk people were part of the action ah, as well. And so great. they were yeah. sort of, you know, performing and selling things. And mm. we had thieves running around and what have you. Yeah. And then when that ended, we would took the people even further down to the sort of basement area to where the old river used to run, where mm. the Māori character could talk about what was taken from her, oh. um, and where the actors reappeared, but with their clothes half torn off them and behaving in a much more realistic yes. manner. Yes. And then we let the audience out the back of the uh, Athenaeum onto what used to be Bell Hill, which we talked about in yes. the play, yes. um, which is now, of course, what's it called now? It's just part of the, the Moray Place rise. Yeah, where first churches. With the church yeah. on mm. the top of it, mm. yeah. Yes. So they come out into that very place, which is all part of the yes. world of the play. Amazing. Yeah. So I love site-specific work that in evokes a sense of belonging to the place that you find yourself mm. in. Mm. And it's wonderful for the audience to immerse themselves into that. There's yeah. a whole new level, isn't there? Absolutely. Yeah, you're not just watching, you're actually in amongst it. Exactly. Yeah. One of, in, when we did Lines of Fire, one of the things that happened was that one of the actors who was playing a contemporary, Hilary Halbo, in fact, um, oh, just yes, wandered yes. around Great with actress. the other audience yeah. members from the start of the show as if she were in the audience. Yes. And no one knew she wasn't until her phone rang, which of course could <laughs> happen to anybody. <laughs> But the phone, of course, was part of the performance. Ah, and so right. then she became the character who answered her phone. Yes. And it took them a while to realise yeah. she was an actor. Yeah, <laughs> and that was kind of intentional, of course. Um, so how did you get involved in WOW Productions? How did that come about? Was um, that born out of the fortune? or? In, in a manner of speaking, yes. Um, WOW Productions started in 1996 when a group of us felt that we would like to have some further autonomy in what we put on and didn't need to feel constrained in the way that the fortune sometimes was forced to be constrained by having, you know, take into account popularity of work. Yeah. So um, we uh, created WOW as a professional cooperative mm. and began to stage work, often New Zealand work, sometimes commissioned work, yes. um, sometimes work that we just loved and wanted to see done. For example, one of our 
success stories in the early years was Arcadia by Tom Stoppard, ah, right. which is yes. an extraordinary play, but which the fortune had for whatever reason not been able to confront and attack. Mm. And we did that in the Dunedin Art Gallery. Brilliant. Yeah. And um, at the time we did it, the play is just wonderful. Do you know it at all? It's set in two time periods. Yes, yes. So it's set both simultaneously in the 19th century and in the present day. Mm. And in the present day, two scholars are trying to investigate what happened in the past. Yes. And sometimes getting completely the wrong angle on it. But yeah. we know that because we see what really happened. Yes. So you have, you know, talk about characters like Lord Byron, for example, and what he was getting up to at the, mm. at the time. Um, I think it's one of the best things still that Stoppard ever wrote because it's it goes beyond his often very clever, clever writing mm. and has a deeply human quality to yes. it. Very touching play at the end. And anyway, one of the paintings in the art gallery was actually by one of the artists that's referred to in Stoppard's uh, play. So again, that's a lovely think, kind yes, of yes. synchronicity. And we did other plays in the art gallery as well, like Cherish, for example. Oh, yes, that you won the award for. Yeah, <laughs> mm -hmm. which is a play by um, Ken Duncombe, who's a New Zealand playwright. Yes. And that was lovely to put on in there too. And then I didn't direct it, but there was a wonderful production of a play by Aperana Taylor called uh, Fire Kaira, which is, which is a kind of an adaptation of um, Mother Courage. All right, yes. And that was done in the Otago Museum in, oh. the, in, the, in one of the beautiful galleries in there. Yes. You've done another production there, didn't you do something in the Animal Attic? Yes, yes. We certainly did a, a play called Collapsing Creation, which is about Charles that was Darwin. That about Charles Darwin, that's right. And that yeah. seemed to me that the Animal Attic was the obvious perfect. and perfect environment to yes. stage a play about Charles Darwin. Yeah. That was by Arthur Meek, who's again a New Zealand playwright. Mm. And we've also had plays that you've done here in the library, so it's been... We've done... Um, the Fortune in particular has done a lot of... Um, Readings, yes, saucy readings. We used to saucy have. readings. That's right. That's right. Lunchtime. And Wild Productions has done those as well. Yes. Most recently, a reading of one of the productions that Wild did fairly recently was a play called The Flick by Annie oh, Baker. Oh, I loved that play. It's a wonderful, wonderful play Absolutely. directed by Lara McGregor, yes. who was a wonderful director. Yeah. So at the library, we read another one of um, her plays. That's right. Just I think called Circle Mirror something or other. I should yes, remember. Yes, it was. Yes, that's right. I can't remember what it was called either, but yes, and we had a lovely collaboration for the archive, actually, for Scattered Seeds Archive, looking at early cinemas. Absolutely, of yes. Dunedin. So that's a lovely connection we had. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And that was because of the flick, so... It was, that's right. That was part of WOW's intention, sort yeah. of bring all these elements together in some way. Yes. A lot of the praise for that should go to our producer for that show, whose name is Rosella Hart. Oh, she was brilliant, yes. Who's wonderful yes. and is also a wonderful actor. Yes. And her husband, Matt Wilson, um, was the star of um, The End of the Golden Weather, which ah, I right. yes. directed most recently for WOW, which was kind of a tour around various halls to kind mm. of emulate the way that Bruce Mason would tour the play himself. That's right, yes. Well, I'm, I'm sure that was the one that came to Mosgill Library. Yes, it yes. did. Yes. Amongst other places. Yes, I came to see that packed house, a small house, but it very just, yeah, you couldn't fit any more people yeah, in. Yeah, no, it was that was, great all the venues production. were small, and I think that yeah. that was our intention, that there would be yeah. an intimacy it between was, you and was, the performer. It was wonderful, and very, you, yes, it just captured everyone who was there. Mm. Yeah, wonderful production. Yeah. Um, so we're really excited by the prospect that WOW Productions are now going to be digitising some of their material so yeah. we'll be, be able to protect it and preserve it forevermore in the <laughs> archive. So we're looking forward to working with you more on that. Great. 
Yeah, but um, for now, that's been wonderful chatting to you. You're welcome, Jane. And I enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. Thanks. Oh, well, it was wonderful chatting to Lisa there. Thank you so much for coming in. Um, and to echo the sentiment, I suppose, I think this is a really good song to play at this point in time. This is The Show Must Go On by Queen.
we'll continue our theatrical uh, theme for today's show. I'd just like to remind you that the Reed Gallery had an exhibition back in 2006 entitled Flits Across the Stage, and where we showcased at the library a selection of visually stimulating highlights from the library's diverse collection of theatrical ephemera. You may not have known that we had theatrical ephemera. You just come along and have a look at it. That's wonderful. Wonderful collection of programmes and tickets and goodness knows what from theatre theatre and productions and operas past. And the emphasis for the Flits Across the Stage exhibition was on Dunedin's vibrant 20th century from the Edwardian era until the gradual demise of its entertainment centrepiece, His Majesty's Theatre, in the early 1970s, a sad day then. The theatrical ephemera we had on display at the library was of a, a widely variegated hue. It promoted drama, comedy, grand and light opera, musical theatre, vaudeville, variety shows and other entertainments. Rare programmes for wartime concerts by military troops also made an appearance, along with materials publicising visits to Dunedin by prominent entertainers. There are quite a few of those. And you can view the digitised exhibition on the Dunedin Library's website under Heritage, if you look for the Heritage button at the top, and you'll find the on online exhibitions there. And there's some interesting notes from the flits across the stage that I picked up as I was having a look through the exhibition. There's, for example, a programme from the White Chateau, a Reginald Barclay play by the Little Theatre Society, and that was performed at His Majesty's Theatre on November the 5th, 1935. It was written in 1925 and it was an anti-war play written for radio by the English politician and playwright Reginald Barclay. And the programme features the striking artwork of Russell Clark, who became an official New Zealand war artist in the later stages of World War II. The White Chateau was the first play performed by the Dunedin Little Theatre Society at a packed His Majesty's Theatre. And the Little Theatre's frequently topical plays received typically enthusiastic reviews in the Otago Daily Times. The Little Theatre resided in the former Tabernacle building in King Street from 1936, but the society sadly dissolved amid financial difficulties in 1938. There was also a case at the exhibition containing the programmes for productions that featured prominent entertainers who visited Dunedin during the 20th century, including Sir Harry Lauder. His Majesty's Theatre Dunedin, June 21st, 1923, was when Sir Harry Lauder put in an appearance. He was a Scottish music, music hall and vaudeville theatre singer, and he was a comedian of international fame. He was typically dressed in a kilt and carrying a cromach, and he was the first Scottish recording artist to sell a million records. At his peak, he was the highest paid performer in the world. So, wonderful chance for the Dunedin folk to see Sir Harry Lauder there in 1923. Uh, there was a visit by Anna Pavlova, from whence came the dessert, I believe, performing at His Majesty's Theatre Dunedin on June 29th, 1926. The celebrated Anna Pavlova was a Russian prima ballerina and choreographer who became the most celebrated ballet dancer of her time. The company she, performed, she formed in 1911 was the first to tour ballet around the world and we were fortunate to have her visit. Uh, we also had in Dunedin a memorable performance by Dame Sybil Thorndike. I don't know if you recall her. She was remembered in a programme from the play St Joan by George Bernard Shaw. And that was at His Majesty's Theatre, Dunedin. That was at His Majesty's Theatre, Dunedin, in 1933. Dame Sybil Thorndike was an English actress who toured internationally in Shakespearean productions, often appearing with her husband, Lewis Casson. And Bernard Shaw wrote St Joan especially for her, and she starred in it with great success. We also had a visit from Noel Coward. He performed a patriotic concert in the Town Hall in uh, January 
1941. Noel Coward, as you probably know, was an English playwright, actor, director, composer and singer famed for his flamboyance and wit, so it would have been very entertaining. Um, During World War II, having been tasked by the British intelligence to use his celebrity to influence public and political opinion in favour of aiding Britain. His travels brought him to Dunedin in 1941, in which year his London home was destroyed by German bombs. That was very sad. And we had a visit from Cicely Courtnidge, who came to Dunedin um, to perform in Under the Counter, which is a, written by uh, Arthur McRae, lyrics by Harold Purcell, music by Manning Sherwin. That was at the St James Theatre, Dunedin, on September 18th, 1948. And Cicely Courtnidge was an English actress of stage and screen, a comedian and singer. The show was produced by her husband, Jack Holbert. Uh, and it was a highly successful comedy concerning post-war black market and luxury goods, which really struck a chord with audiences after the privations of the war. And lastly, the Cambridge Circus came to town in 1964, part of their New Zealand tour. The Cambridge Circus was a group of seven ex-Cambridge students who successfully toured New Zealand in 1964, and it included, if you'll remember, the pre-fame appearances by John Cleese and Graham Chapman, who were, of course, later members of Monty Python, and also Tim Brooke Taylor and Bill Oddie, who later became the goodies. Well, I've run out of time once again, so uh, we'll call it a draw for today. But do tune in next week, 11am on Monday morning. Next week's show, we have Athel Parks coming to talk to us from City Walks, so I'm looking forward to that. Tune in on 105.4 FM or 1575am on Monday, 11am, and we have a repeat show on Tuesdays at 10pm. And of course, don't forget the podcast is available on the oar.org.nz website. And again, if you have any memories you'd like to share with us, do email me on library at dcc.govt.nz or call 03474-3690 and leave a message for Kay. I'll call you back. Thank you. So for now, have a great week and we'll see you next time. Bye.
This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.